0: If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, uh, Revelation chapter 2 is where we're at. If you need a Bible, uh, just raise up your hand, and the men walking down the aisle would love to put a Bible under your hand. Uh, As we study the scriptures together, it's important to us that uh, you see what it is that we're saying God is saying, uh, so that you can uh, follow along and and hear uh, a word from the Lord. So Revelation chapter 2 is where we're at this morning in our uh, continuing study through the book of Revelation, uh, picking up. Uh, where we were at last week, and uh, my intention uh, going forward between Pastor Art and I is to continue through the book of Revelation to uh, see it to the end. Um, So that's the direction we're going. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be picking it up in verse 12 uh, with the church of uh, Pergamos. Uh, Perhaps in your Bible it's Pergamum, depending on the translation you have. Uh, But would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Revelation chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 12 and read through verse 17. I will begin with verse 12, if you would respond with the odd verses, and I'll read the even verses, and we'll get through it together. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, we read, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who have taught, uh, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Repent, or else I will come. To you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, which is to us a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, it uh, can divide between the thoughts and the intents of our own heart. And uh, Lord, we pray that your word would have its work in us. Lord, and as we uh, dive into your word, Lord, we pray that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts to receive from you all that you have for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In the book of Revelation, uh, it is a revelation of Jesus. And so, as we examine each section of Revelation, we should be asking ourselves the question what is this telling us about who Jesus is and what Jesus wants? And we're in a series of letters that Jesus writes to a series of churches. And uh, the conclusion to each of the letters of each of the churches um, is is very similar uh, in, in the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear. And uh, if you have ears, that includes us this morning. So uh, we're not in Pergamos, per se, um, but we have ears. And so for each of these letters, uh, we should be mindful that they were written to particular churches at a particular time, but they are also written to us as a church that belongs to the Lord and as a people that belong to to the Lord. And uh, Pergamos, uh, their location was slightly different than the previous other uh, churches we've studied thus far. Uh, the two other churches um, were both uh, port cities, kind of on the coast, and they had lots of people coming in and out. And uh, Pergamos is not a port city. It's more inland, but it was not uh, unimportant in its uh, place in uh, history. In fact, it was one of the most prominent uh, places in in the Roman uh, Period of time as kind of a, served as a second Rome, if you would, but for the uh, East. And they were a church, they were a church in a city that the city 50 years before Smyrna had a temple worshiping uh, Caesar, had the first temple worshiping Caesar. And because of that, they were given the right to um, execute uh, Roman justice without having to have Roman permission to do so. And and that is, sentencing people to death and carrying out the death penalty, was granted to them at the same time that was granted to them the ability to worship and set up a whole temple to worship the Caesar at the time. And so a fairly ungodly place in its heart. And in addition to that, it had many other um, temples to other gods. Uh, Some notable ones where it had a giant throne that was set up for Zeus. It had a temple uh, set up for Asclepius, which was a a god of healing. Um, In fact, a a lot of our uh, symbolism, even in America now, uh, reflects that. It's a a serpent, uh, was Asclepius, who would provide healing for the people, and uh, you would go to Pergamos, if you were sick, looking for healing. And part of their practices uh, was a- allowing you to sleep in the temple of Asclepius uh, with snakes. And this is uh, one of those situations where the cure is definitely worse than whatever the disease was. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so there is a lot of uh, wickedness um, as a normal in in Pergamos. And they uh, were in a place where It was required again for those, uh, at least once a year, to those impergamos at least once a year to offer a sacrifice, a a pinch of incense to Caesar, and to declare Caesar is Lord, uh, which was not an option, really, for a a believer of the Lord, uh, because there is only one Lord that we acknowledge as as believers, and so it was a very difficult place. Um, Last week we considered the church in Smyrna, who was encouraged, you know stand fast in the face of death and the persecution that's going to come, that's going to be deadly. And in uh, the church we're considering today, um, that's old news for them. That's already happened uh, for them. And so they're a church that's in a very difficult city who have experienced some very difficult things. And uh, it is to this church that Jesus uh, officially writes uh, this letter. Uh, and. We're gonna see a, a few things, but the the big idea of what we're going to see is that it's it's possible to be a faithful believer in the hardest places. It's possible to be a faithful believer in the hardest places, but uh, there's, there's things that make it more difficult that are obvious, and there are things that make it difficult that are less obvious, and so we're gonna consider the obvious ones first. Uh, in the first couple of verses, verses 12 through 13, faithfulness to Christ uh, in, in some places is going to be a capital offense on earth. Uh, I was looking it up just the other day, and uh, in about 10 or so countries, uh, you can receive the death penalty for being a Christian. That's the, that's the offense, and it's carried out. Um, there's a, a couple of websites that track these sorts of things of persecution of Christians uh, from year to year. And last year there were uh, more than 5,000 Christians killed for their faith, uh, which is up 30% from just a few years ago. And so uh, I know that might seem far and away from us uh, here in America, um, but it is the reality of brothers and sisters around the world today that uh, faithfulness to Christ is a capital offense to whoever it is that they're living on earth. And for those in Pergamos, that was the case Notice how he uh, begins. Uh, It's how he begins almost every letter uh, to each church, and it's with the declaration that he knows uh, where they're at and what they're doing. God knows what his people are doing and where his people are at. Notice there again in verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell. Uh, So he sees what they're doing, Uh, and uh, it's during times that are hard uh, when it isn't uncommon to wonder if God sees or if God knows. Uh, If you've read through Scripture, there have been many throughout Scripture who have asked the question, God, do you see what's happening? Do you care about what's happening? Do you even know? And uh, the children of Israel, when they were in Egypt and under the heavy burdens, were crying out to the Lord and like, Lord, don't you see? Um, At other points, uh, if you read through the Psalms, Uh, a lot of the psalmists are, God, how long? (laughs) And it's because it feels like God is far away. And the answer to that question of does God know is always yes. God knows. God knows where you are and he knows what you're doing. Uh, And if you are being faithful to the Lord, that's comforting. (laughs) Uh, If you're not, then it's a little less comforting. Um, But God knows this group of people, and he wants them to know that he knows. That's the first thing that he tells them. That's the first thing that he tells every church is that he knows their works. And here he tells them, I know where you dwell. But he mentions their works first, so let's consider that first. He says uh, that he knows their works. There's two parts of their works that he knows, and it's really two sides of the same coin. He says, uh, regarding their works, you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Uh, Two sides of the same coin. If you're uh, holding fast to his name, then you're not going to deny the faith. And if you're not denying the faith, then you're holding fast to his name. And again, this is in a place where there was a price tag associated with that. And that price tag could be death. The pinch, of incense and the declaration that Caesar is Lord uh, was something that they had to face annually. The cost of their obedience would be death. Uh, We're told there also in verse 13 that even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you. And so he tells them, look, you guys have been faithful and you even have amongst your numbers people who have laid down their life as a witness to me. He calls Antipas here, my faithful martyr. Uh, The word martyr there in the English has got a very similar word in the original language behind it, um, which normally is translated witness. Um, And it's the word martyr. And the word itself uh, changed in meaning over the years. So when this was written, the meaning was just witness. Uh, But that slowly turned into uh, a witness who was willing to go to jail for telling the truth, a witness who was willing to die for the testimony that he had to share. And it was kind of in these circumstances where, um, and to where our, uh, the way we use the term today is somebody who has died for the testimony that they're unwilling to change. like I, 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 This is the truth and I will die <laughs> declaring that this is the truth and I, this is a truth I'm willing to die for is what a martyr is now Uh, then it was just somebody who was a witness in a court, somebody who was testifying to the truth. And it came to the point where it was so common for Christians to die for the truth that the term martyr became synonymous with Christians dying for the truth because of the testimony of what they were saying. And so you could translate what is translated here as my faithful martyr as my faithful witness. The, The original language is the same of how you would put it. And that's a phrase that actually Jesus uses of himself as a faithful witness of who God is, in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 5, uh, it's a title that he has that he's now sharing with this man who laid down his life for the truth. And he gains that title by laying his life down for the truth. Uh, To be faithful unto death is something that this church has already been. Uh, they could probably send some people over to Smyrna. I'm like, this is how it's done. <laughs> this is how you're supposed to do this particular piece. Um, they were doing this hard thing very well of holding fast to his name and not denying the faith. And they weren't doing it in like a really easy place to do it. Uh, notice the first and last phrases in which uh, he describes where they dwell. So at the beginning of verse 13, he says, I know your works and where you dwell. And then uh, let your eyes go down to the end of the verse. He says, where Satan dwells. You dwell where Satan dwells. That's my shortened version of that verse. Uh, and that's that's probably not all that comforting, but also probably not all that surprising <laughs> to them. Um, but this is not like uh, some preacher trying to like work up the crowd of like, oh, we live in the hardest place in the world. This is like God's opinion <laughs> of the situation. Like, he's the one who can tell where Satan is dwelling currently. And he's like, yep. There. <laughs> you dwell where Satan dwells. And the word there for dwell is not, like, uh, you know, temporary, like that's where he's at at the moment, but that's where he's, like, living. That's where his house is at. That's where he calls home. So where they call home is where the devil calls home. It's, it's his house of operations. Um, and uh, later he would describe that same area as where the throne of Satan is at. Um, so it's where all of the marching orders are coming from. It's that it's the center of spiritual warfare from God's perspective, is where they live currently. Uh, and so that's that's a tough place to be. Uh, you could summarize it this way: they they lived in a place and at a time where the major political affiliations stood in direct opposition to living faithfully for Christ. And when faithful Christian living was a capital offense. That's a tough place to be. And they were uh, on the front end doing really well with that. They were laying down their lives for uh, the truth and holding fast to his name and not denying the faith. And in this we see that it is possible to be faithful in the hardest place during the hardest time. It is possible to be faithful to the Lord in the hardest place, in the hardest time. I'm not sure how well we as Californians compare. Uh, I'm not sure where the current locality of Satan's throne is, uh, but sometimes it doesn't feel all that far <laughs> in, in terms of where we're at and the direction in which we are going. Um, it is uh, my best guess, so this is not Austin prophecy, but my, my best guess, guessery, is that the future of the church in America is going to uh, be a lot harder than it is a lot easier, and that it's going to cost us more than it's cost us before uh, in a variety of ways? And my hope for us is that we would hold fast to the name and not deny the faith, whatever that cost is, and and we we can see here in scripture that it is possible to be a faithful believer in California. Sometimes I get asked that question <laughs> as a pastor in California. It's like, can you be a Christian in California? I'm like, well, in Pergamus they figured it out. <laughs> and that's where for sure Satan's throne was, and that's where he was living. So if it's possible there, it's possible anywhere. It's possible here uh, for us as well. And so faithfulness to Christ uh, is a capital offense on earth, but there's another capital offense that those in Pergamus should be aware of, uh, something that should uh, gain their attention, which is less obvious. Um, If the outward attack was clear from the political environment in which they were in and the hardships that they had from those on the outside, that the danger on the outside, as severe and life-threatening as it was, there was a, a greater danger on the inside Uh, that had equal consequence. Uh, If you notice in verses uh, 14 through 16, uh, we see that there is compromise in the camp of those in Pergamus, and that compromise from God's perspective is a capital offense in heaven. Compromise is a capital offense in heaven. So if faithfulness is a capital offense on earth, compromise is a capital offense in heaven, and we're going to see how that plays out here in verses 14 through 16. Notice how Uh, He begins, he says, But I have a few things against you. And there are two things in particular that he mentions. He says, Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. And so uh, some pretty strong words uh, to a church that has been faithful in a hard place during a hard time, uh, and yet he does not hold back um, this much needed and very clear uh, correction that he offers to them. He, he's warning them that there is compromise within their walls, and he points it out in two ways. Um, one is going to be a bit clearer. Uh, And the other one is going to be a bit shorter, and so we're going to deal with the shorter one first um, when he says they have there with them those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And there's not too much that we know about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Uh, What we do know from Scripture is that God doesn't like that doctrine (laughs) because he tells us here. Uh, Also, previously uh, in Revelation, we're told that uh, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans uh, or the deeds of the Nicolaitans are, are deeds that he hates Uh, in a previous church, in uh, chapter 2, verse 6, he says, he commends the church for, like, I I like that you also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So their deeds and their doctrines, which are not unrelated, are things that the Lord hates. Um, The best guess that a lot of scholars have is by parsing out the word itself, Nicolaitans, which means to conquer people. And so it was an over an overly shepherding of people, of you having to go to the pastor to ask who you can date and who you can't date, of what property you should buy and what property you shouldn't buy, what kind of a refrigerator you should get, you need to ask me in order to be able to do whatever it is that you're going to do. And um, to, to have a huge difference between those who are in leadership and those who aren't in leadership um, to a, a place where it was unbiblical and not founded. And so that's their best guess at what it is. Whatever it is, we know that the Lord didn't like it. And that it was currently allowed in the fellowship at the church in Pergamos, that they had those who held to this doctrine. More clearly, we we see that they also had those who held the doctrine of Balaam. Uh, If you're doing your Bible reading, uh, it's going to be coming soon. Uh, If you're doing the Bible reading uh, with Rebecca and I, we're going through scripture chronologically. Uh, I just set out a sign uh, in front of the the Bible reading plans because it's about that time where uh, you may have start it well <laughs> and you're you're behind a week or a few days um, the sign reads this way if you're following along and you're trying to go through scripture with with us is if you uh, fall behind don't don't give up <laughs> don't try to make up just pick up where you left off just pick up where we're at today today is where the man is at uh, if you missed a week's worth of meals it would be a bad plan to try to eat a week's worth of meals in one day <laughs> just eat, eat eat today's bread uh, if you've missed yesterday, it's okay. You have today. Uh, and then just keep keep going. Uh, the, the devil would have us not be in the word uh, for a variety of reasons, and there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're feeling condemned, that's not from the Lord. Uh, if you're feeling convicted, that's from the Lord. <laughs> Don't ignore that. <laughs> but condemnation is not from Christ. So uh, if you are endeavoring to read through continue doing that. We'll be getting to this section in scripture soon. In Numbers uh, chapter 22 is described the story of uh, Balaam, this uh, prophet. He's presented as a prophet of God. Uh, he's kind of a strange guy. He seems to be more interested in money and cursing whoever needs to be cursing, uh, receive God's cursing from uh, for money. And so he was a prophet for hire. And uh, the children of Israel were coming out of the nation of Egypt, and they were scaring everybody they were going to because, like, these guys came out of Egypt. How did they get out of there? I don't know. If God's with them. They're going to they're gonna kill us too. And then then they were there, and Balak was like, ah, <laughs> I need somebody to curse them. And so he hires Balaam to come out and curse God's people. And uh, it's kind of an interesting story. I, I have some highlights here. Um, he was hired to curse God's people. God told him not to go, and then he went and then God told him to only say what he told them to say. Uh, and he'll end up saying more than that. But in the beginning, uh, he was told not to go. He, was, he found a loophole in what God told him to do, sort of. And God calls him out on it. He's like, no, I told you not to go unless. And he didn't wait for the unless part. He just went. And on his way there, he has an argument with his donkey. It's a true story. If you come Wednesday, we'll get into this part of the story. It's actually very applicable to what's going on here in the persecuted church. And so uh, I encourage you, come Wednesday, and we'll, we'll get into the details of why this particular part of the story, where he's having an argument with a donkey, is, is important to this story as well. But uh, not only does he have an argument with a donkey, but he loses, <laughs> loses the argument. <laughs> um, this is one of the things that concerns me as a pastor, just as a side note. Whenever God wants to speak to his people, he speaks through prophets. Whenever God wants to speak to his prophets, it's donkeys whales, burning bushes. It's not normal stuff, is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Because they're so used to hearing from God, he has to get their attention in unusual ways. And he is, Balaam is so focused on getting this paycheck that he doesn't even notice that he's arguing with a donkey. God has to open his eyes so that he can see what the donkey sees. (laughs) So that he can see that the donkey's right. Anyway, so he goes, he tries to curse God's people. Four times, he blesses God's people. And the guy that hired him is like, this is not what I hired you to do. (laughs) Um, But before he leaves, he says more than what God told him to say, which was just to bless the people. He counsels the king, Balak, on how to get God's people cursed. He's like, I can't curse God's people. They are a blessed people. But here's how you can bring God's severe correction upon them. Send your ladies in and have them go worship your gods with them, which was eating meat offered to idols, which led into sexual immorality, which brought compromise within the, the congregation there of the nation of Israel, and 24,000 men died. They couldn't be conquered on the outside, but they opened the back door to be conquered on the inside. And it was because they compromised who they allowed in and what they allowed in. And it wasn't until they dealt with it with a sword <laughs> that it, would, it that it stopped. There was a plague there until they dealt with it and people were dying. Paul refers to this uh, account in uh 1 Corinthians 10, and he says, he points to it, and he says, in one day, 23,000 died. Now, people, more people than that died, but in one day, 23,000 died because they allowed sexual immorality, the, the and sexual, the, the sexual morality of the world, the standards of how the world does things was said, that's okay here too. Compromise is allowing in what God says must be out. Compromise is allowing in what God says must be out. Compromise is not the unforgivable sin, though. Um, Jesus tells them there in verse 16 what they must do because of this. Uh, It's a one-word command. Repent. Compromise requires repentance. And here's the encouraging part about that. Repentance for believers is always possible. And in many cases, is always required. Uh, Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray, taught them how to pray and repent daily. The ladies will be studying this in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, But uh, daily repentance is normal Christian living. First John 1 John 1.9, one of my favorite verses, uh, my dad always used to refer to it as the Christian spar of soap. It says, if we uh, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those words weren't written to you know the heathen out there. They were written to the holy in here. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance is a change of mind that produces a change in direction. Uh, there was a time in which I, I moved around a bunch. Um, it's been a few years. Um, but I lived in 10 different places within two years. Highly not recommended. Uh, it would take me three truckloads, and one truckload was just books. So that was not fun doing that truckload. Uh, and I was driving home from spending some time with some friends, and I was halfway home when I realized I didn't live in that home anymore. and I. <laughs> I needed to go to a different direction, but like I was like way out there, and I was like, I need to go this way. Um, but it wasn't the realization that I was going the wrong direction that produced repentance. It was turning my truck around, you know, doing a fifteen-point turn because you know the roads out here, and uh, turning around and actually going the other way. It's when we realize the truth of the direction we're going in is not the direction we need to be going in, but it's when we take action on that truth that's that's repentance. I could have realized that I was going the wrong direction and just kept going. I wouldn't have ended up home. And our journey home to heaven is going to require lots of repentance along the way when we realize the direction we're heading in and where we're at is not the direction that we want to be headed in. It's not heading us home. And so repentance is required where there's compromise. Um, But repentance is just always required as a Christian. So don't ever feel bad about needing to repent. Just be like, thank you, Lord, for showing me. (laughs) Here we go. What they needed to repent of was they needed to remove the teachers that were among them that shouldn't be there. Uh, These teachers are described, actually, in both uh, Peter's second letter and the book of Jude uh, as being present in those same kinds of churches, as false teachers, as teachers who love money more than they love people. And there are Bible teachers who love money more than they love people. And we need to be aware of that, that. uh, the people of God are sold for a price by some who claim to be teachers of God. Uh, we, we need to know that in, in order to make sure that what they're teaching <laughs> isn't selling us for a price. But they, they needed to go. Uh, and he doesn't end it there. He doesn't just say, repent. Uh, in the New King James, at least, it's, it sounds a bit ominous. He says, repent or else... <laughs> Who <laughs> right? And his or else tells us that this is a capital offense in heaven. He says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, in, in Pergamus they they had the right of the sword according to Rome. They could execute capital punishment upon those who deserved it from their perspective. They were given that right, but Jesus here is saying, I also have the right of capital punishment. <laughs> And if you won't do it, I will. Not unlike what happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness, where the Lord brought a plague amongst them, where he was dealing with them on an individual level of all of those who would not repent of this immorality, of those who were engaging in it actively. And notice, I want you to notice this very important distinction, though. He doesn't say he's going to execute his church. He's going to execute those who shouldn't be in the church. He says, repent and I will come to you quickly and we'll fight against them. This isn't him coming and fighting against us because we're not getting our act together. But if he, if we won't, he will deal with it. And, and to him, it is of tremendous importance that we get this right. That uh, one of the dangers in being in a hard place during a hard time uh, is that sometimes the enemies are obvious you know, they're the ones with the swords. <laughs> and, and the enemies to the Israelites that eventually conquered them weren't the men, it was the women. It was the not obvious <laughs> that got them. And, and for them to be careful to not be in a place of being compromised. God will deal with unrepentant compromise quickly and decisively. This is how he describes himself at the beginning of the letter. Normally we would deal with that first, but I wanted to surprise attack you. Uh, He says, remember at the very beginning of the letter, he says, I I am he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And when you're thinking about a church in persecution, you would be like, oh yeah, for the the obvious outward attack from these people over here. And that's not who the sword was for. (laughs) The the sword was for those uh, who were there in the fellowship who shouldn't have been there in the fellowship. So, this serves as a twofold warning, as an encouragement to us that God desires purity amongst his people, and a warning to the wolves within. Paul warned the, the church in Ephesus, like, hey, after I leave, ravenous wolves will come in among you. And he said, even from the teachers. Sometimes we can think that if somebody has the, the title pastor before their name, they're a safe person. We can trust what they say. Um, but, but the Lord tells us that there are some who claim. A title that's not theirs. Wolves in Sheep's Clothing. So faithfulness to Christ will be a capital offense on earth. Compromise is a capital offense in heaven. But he ends on a word of hope that blessing comes to all who overcome. Blessing, blessings come to all who overcome. Notice uh, what he says there in verse 17. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except for him who receives it. Again, this message is uh, not a a time-stamped message for the Church of Pergamos at the time of the writing of this letter, but for all who had, have ears to hear. Uh, If you have kids or have had kids, you know that sometimes, even though they have ears, (laughs) they don't have ears to hear. (laughs) I mean, you can borrow this phrase if you want. (laughs) To he he who has an ear to hear, it's dinner time, (laughs) right? I I don't know. Be biblical on how you make your announcements at home. Um, but for us, I would hope each of us has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church. The danger of false teaching and immoral conduct still faces the church today. And I would say in the last few years, in new and exciting ways, <laughs> ways in which we haven't even thought or dreamed of, uh, is impacting us and dividing churches. But the standard we must hold is not our standard. It must be his, certainly not the culture's, but God's standard must be the standard for his church. The blessing he pronounces is twofold um, and directed at a very particular group. He says, to him who overcomes, and uh, a few questions come to mind. What does it mean to overcome? Uh, What are we overcoming, and how are we overcoming? So, what does it mean to overcome? the The word in the Greek actually comes from the word uh, we get. Uh, actually, am I wearing them? No, I'm not. Okay. Sometimes I wear Nikes, and Nikes are the Greek. It's the Greek word that's here. Is Nike. It means victory. Um, the one who conquers, the one who is victorious in battle, the one who went in and came out. <laughs> you know, and and was victorious over whatever the battle was. And so it, it has in it the connotation of warfare and victory over that warfare. Uh, there, there's a, the, the story behind uh, um, the marathon. If you've ever wondered why a marathon is a marathon and it's 26.2 miles and all the rest of that, there's a lot of story to it. But part of it was there was a war that was once fought and they were victorious there. And then the, the enemies that were, uh, were defeated decided to sail to the main town to try to tell them they were victorious and lie to them because there was no communication at the time that was gonna be faster than traveling on sea, they were gonna try to trick them into surrendering their city by saying they had won the battle when they had not. And so one guy from the battle ran 26 miles (laughs) from there to the other place and said one word, Nike, we were victorious. And then he died (laughs) because he'd already fought in the battle and then ran all the way there. But he, he had a message and the message was, were victorious. And so they knew not to surrender to the enemy that was gonna come and say, I've already won, because they were lying. And we are those who are victorious, not because we've obtained the victory. We're told a lot of times, uh, I have three passages in particular in First John, uh, where the same word is used of believers in the what and the how and the why. 1 John 4.4, 4, which is a good verse to memorize whenever you're feeling attacked by the enemy, you just hit him over the head with a 4x4, four 1 four. John 4.4. 4. Uh, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And it's that last part that's the 4x4, four four, if you want to memorize it that way. 1 John 4, 4, is he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That is why we are victorious, not because we're awesome, because he who is awesome (laughs) is for us. That is it. 1 John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 1 John 4, 5, Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our victory is in Christ. Uh, Paul would write to the Romans that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We can be more than conquerors if the conquering has already been done. (laughs) Uh, It's a favorite thing of my son to do, uh, to uh, pick a team playing football and then to change his mind about which team he wants to be going for towards the end of the game, (laughs) because he wants to be on the winning team, he repents. (laughs) And uh, we know how the story ends. We're on the winning team. We are more than conquerors because of the work that Christ has done. The two gifts he gives these overcomers, these conquerors, uh, are hidden manna in a white stone Uh, And I wish I could say with certainty and clarity what those things are, um, but I'll give you everybody else's best guess. Uh, The hidden manna uh, could be a reference to Jesus himself, who claimed to be the bread of life, who has come down from heaven, who was hidden from a lot of people as being the Messiah in the time. And to me, that's my favorite interpretation of it. It could be a lot of other things, and if you want more on that, we can discuss that on Wednesday night. The, the white stone also has a lot of different um, interpretations to it. Um, the white stone was given, a white stone was given to athletes who competed in the Olympic games, uh, not far from Pergamos. And if you won in represent, as a representative of your area, you were given a white stone which gave you free meals for life and to, and to be tax free. So like that's, that's a pretty valuable white stone, <laughs> right? And, but it was only ever given to those who were victorious. And so it's given to them. There's other uh, instances in which white stones were given. White stones were given as invitations to feasts, um, as a kind of a ticket of entry into uh, government-officiated of, uh, feasts that they would have been aware of because they had those there in Pergamos. Um, it was given to those uh, as a cast vote for being innocent. If you went to trial, somebody could put, cast a black stone, I think he's guilty, or a white stone, I think he's innocent. And so there's a variety of stones that were common at the time of the writing of this um, that were associated with it, but to me, more significant than the color and the giving of a stone is the name that's on the stone, and it's a name that's given to them. Now, this could be a name of the Lord, um, but to me, it would seem more clearly that this is a, uh, a new name that were given as new creations in Christ Jesus, uh, the oldest passed away. God's not against renaming people. He does it all the time throughout Scripture. Abram goes to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, um, Peter to Simon. Uh, new names are given to people throughout Scripture, and uh, it's a name that comes from him that's for us, for those who overcome. And it's not because we've done the work, but because we acknowledge him who has done the work. And so as we consider these things, uh, we should ask ourselves the question: Do we, are, are we in one sense ready for that kind of persecution to come on the outside? And do we account for compromise within our own lives of allowing there to be a gap between what we know and what we do? Because where they were at is they knew what was right and they thought that was good enough to be acceptable to the Lord, but they weren't living it out. And, and, and it's where there's the gap between what we know we ought to do and what, the way we're actually living, that, that gap God calls compromise. And God doesn't think lightly of compromise within his fellowship or within our lives. And if there is, the good news this morning is that repentance is always an option. The moment we realize that we're off track is the opportunity God is giving us to repent. I didn't mean to go the wrong way, but I did when I was going home. Or home, I thought I was going home. But God deals with the sin that's in our lives because he wants to deal with the sin that's in our lives. He's not pointing it out to condemn us. He's pointing it out to correct us. He's pointing it out so that he may more freely bless us. Uh, There are days when I intend to bless my kids, and I come home and mom tells me they need a spanking. And I'm like, but I brought them candy. (laughs) I really want to bless them with this. Like, that's my intention. That's my heart. Um, Part of loving my kids, though, is correcting them. It's not a different part of who I am. It's not like the angry part of Dad corrects them and the loving part of Dad gets some candy. It's the loving part that does both. And God loves us. He loves us enough to bless us, and He loves us enough to correct us. We're going to close in a song so I'm going to invite the worship team up to, to, uh, to do that. But as they come up, I want to lead us in a word of prayer and perhaps a word of repentance. Um, if you don't know the Lord, today is the day of salvation for you. Uh, otherwise, there's a sword <laughs> that he has. Uh, but if there's been compromise in your heart, if there's been any deliberate gap between what you know is true and the way you choose to live, let today be the day of repentance for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for you, Lord, for your love for us. Lord, that you know where we're at uh, is a hard place, and that the time in which we live is a hard time. Lord, you see the good works that we're doing and the the faithfulness that we have. Lord, you you see the areas which require repentance too, and you're not angry with us. You're not going to slay us with the sword. Uh, That's not your heart, Uh, but your heart is for us not to remain there. And so, Lord, I pray for Uh, Myself and as many as have an ear to hear, Lord, that we would uh, have heard what you have said to us this morning, Lord, and to repent. Lord, we are more than conquerors when we do because of our faith in you. We thank you for your love and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.